Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He ko na e purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o a te aroa. Yes, it's hi to Diego. Ah. He likes being with us when we do interviews and things like that. He's an African grey, yeah. and they're the smartest of all the parrot species. And they can learn hundreds of words, and he's already learned quite a few phrases, even though he's only a year old. Wow, kia ora Diego. Kia ora, hello. Say kombucha. I've been trying to teach him that. It's the one word he won't learn. <laughs> Welcome to the final episode in this season of Healthy or Hoax, where we find out if current health fads are as good for us as they claim to be. It has a, like a little, I guess what you consider on a beer, a head. Yeah, it does, you know. And this one to me tastes most like beer of all the other ones because it's malty, it's structured. Um, and it's quite refreshing. This episode is all about fermented food and drinks. It is very refreshing, and it wouldn't give you bad breath like beer does. Oh, yeah, or a hangover or anything like that. Derek Hillen and Diego, the African grey parrot, are regular features at the New Leaf Tap Room in Ponsonby, Auckland. Diego couldn't find his words when we visited, but Derek, who founded the tap room, tells us all about how he makes kombucha. With care. And why its popularity has suddenly skyrocketed. Considering it's been around 2,000 years, I don't think it's a fad and fading. It is growing. Outside of Auckland, it's still rather hard to find. Uh, I remember going down to Fresh Choice in Nelson a few years ago and asking the guy in the beverage counter who was stocking the shelves, he was, he was about my age, you know. Let's say he was uh, approaching the foothills of middle age. And I said, do you have any kombucha? And he goes, what's that, mate? And I told him, I said, it's a fermented tea beverage, you know. And he says, no, we're just simple Kiwis here, mate. <laughs> so they didn't even know what it was. But now that since I've gone back, they do stock it. So it is growing and it is popular. And I think we're at the very beginnings of it becoming a mainstream drink and supplanting soda, for example. I mean, you do have to kind of like the taste. I was actually th- thought it was quite interesting in the US, uh, there's a huge trend now for hard kombucha, which is alcoholic <laughs> kombucha. Yeah, this is, this is a category that's grown hundreds of percent in the last year in the, in the US. People deliberately brewing kombucha for longer so it actually becomes alcoholic. Um, which and then is, we're not so much talking about health benefits. Uh, the alcohol, I would imagine, would uh, counteract any health benefits that you might get from the probiotics in there. But it's a huge trend, so that's kind of interesting. Food and nutrition writer Nikki Bazant sat down with me to explain why kombucha, the non-alcoholic version, is the latest quick health fix. It's off the back of this whole broader trend, which is around gut health and the microbiome. You know, the microbiome is the population of bacteria that lives inside us. We carry around about two kilos of bugs, each of us, which is kind of gross, but kind of cool. <laughs> Scientists used to think that those bugs that we carry around were just kind of sitting there benignly and along for the ride. Uh, whereas now what they know is that those bugs have got a lot of, they're very active and they can do a lot in our bodies and that they are actually responsible for a whole lot to do with our 
every just about every aspect of our health, from our mental health to our you know to all kinds of things to do with our physical health, to even can affect our risk of certain diseases. Can can possibly potentially affect whether we're likely to. Uh, gain weight or become obese, all these kinds of things. So there's a huge amount of research and study going on in the area of the gut. Well, it's interesting too because in an ancient sense, I know in terms of Māori culture, we have words that tell us that the puku was always seen as the centre of uh, emotions but also uh, mental health. So puku kino, for instance, means literally a bad stomach and that means grumpy. So sort of that understanding of the connection between gut and behaviour and feelings was yeah, gut quite and strong. brain. So they knew about the gut-brain axis. Yeah. yeah. And also that fermented foods are quite strong in Māori culture. So may it be something that now Western science is catching up on? Yeah, I think we talk about health halos a lot. So, so certain foods have got health halos and certainly a lot of probiotic foods and fermented foods have got the health halo. But they've also got this sort of veneer of the ancient exotic wisdom about them because they have been used in many, many cultures for hundreds and thousands of years, including, as you say, Māori culture. But, you know, across the board, any culture that you can think of has probably got some example of fermented food in its cuisine. And if you think about it, fermentation started as a way of preserving food, right? So it's it's a really practical way of keeping food for longer, especially pre-refrigeration or pre-freezing. And all of the delicious things that we love, are a lot of them are fermented, you know, like if you think about sourdough bread and cheese and miso soup and wine and beer, you know, a lot of delicious things are fermented. So it does have this idea that it's been around for ages, so it must be good. And it is good. Hello, it's Megan speaking. We called up gut health guru, Dr. Megan Rossi. I am a research fellow at King's College London, and I'm also the very proud author of Eat Yourself Healthy, which is a bit of a Bible to your gut health. She gave us a few tips for spotting a gut in need of some TLC. So unfortunately, there isn't one single test to identify whether you've got a healthy gut or an unhealthy gut. However, there are little clues. Dr. Rossi has come up with a quick questionnaire which can help predict your gut health. So we'll put that up on the RNZ website. But here are some things to look out for. So firstly, one of the key ones is, are you having regular gut symptoms like, you know, constipation, diarrhea, bloating? The other ones, though, are go outside of gut symptoms because just because you don't have gut symptoms doesn't actually necessarily mean you've got good gut health. So it's things like how often are you getting sick? Are you really stressed? How much sleep are you having? Are you following a restrictive diet? Do you have a family history of a different disease or are you on medication? So all of those factors combined really give us a more holistic idea of your gut health. Dr. Rossi says it's super timely to be monitoring our gut health. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, really topical right now is the fact that along our nine-metre digestive tract, so that's actually what gut health is, so it relates to the functioning of our entire digestive tract, which is the tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. Now, along that nine metres actually lays 70% of our immune system. So that's where a lot of research is coming out looking at the link between our immune system and gut health and see that they are so very much interconnected. And in fact, there are some researchers out there currently looking at specific types of probiotics and live bacteria and whether they could have a role in COVID. Now, at the moment, absolutely, I don't recommend people start to take a probiotic for COVID. There is zero evidence, but there are clinical trials underway.
So how do fermented foods affect our gut? Yeah, so fermented foods have been around for thousands of years and there is thousands of different types of fermented foods. And essentially what they are is where bacteria or different types of yeast actually take a food or a drink and transform it. They kind of pre-digest it. And in doing so, they produce a range of different potentially beneficial chemicals. There's probably three different, I guess, mechanisms. And all different types of fermented foods do different elements of these three. Some um, fermented foods actually give us alive microbes, like the kombucha. Some just give us healthy chemicals and some just break down other chemicals, which is in kind of the raw food, so to speak. Because, for example, sourdough. So that's another type of fermented food where the microbes have helped break down some of the um, different nutrients within the wheat kind of dough overnight. And you leave it and they do their thing and then you bake it in the oven. Now, when you bake it in the oven, the actual live microbes end up dying. However, there has been one clinical trial in humans suggesting that sourdough actually has a, a lower impact on your blood sugars compared to whole wheat bread. Now, it was just one study, but it was really interesting. I think it highlights the other element of how fermented foods can have benefit in that they can produce beneficial chemicals and they can also help break down some other elements of foods we call anti-nutrients, which aren't necessarily dangerous, but they may kind of reduce our ability to absorb some nutrients. Anti-nutrients. Sounds terrible. But Dr. Rossi says they're not really anything to worry about. A lot of healthy foods have anti-nutrients. Now back to fermented foods. In the beautiful wood-lined new leaf tap room, Derek Hillen tells me about how he got into kombucha brewing. So uh, I used to brew a lot of beer. I uh, did a course at the Siebel Institute in Chicago, which is America's oldest beer school. And then I flooded the house with beer equipment and I just started making all kinds of beer and giving it away. And let me tell you... As an American in New Zealand, giving Kiwis free beer is the fastest way to make friends. It was very effective. Um, and I got more and more into it, and the more and more into making beer I got, the less and less into me my wife was becoming. Mm-hmm. And being a nutritionist, she finally put her foot down and said, look, if you like brewing so much, why don't you brew something that's healthy? And I tried the whole, but beer is healthy, sweetheart, and she wouldn't buy it. So she you turned pushed, over a new leaf. I turned over a new leaf. Very good. And that's why we call this new leaf kombucha. And our symbol is the tea leaf and water. And also, you might be interested to know, the best teas in the world come from the newest leaves. Helen brought out a tasting paddle. It would have been rude not to try them. So the first one you're about to try is uh, the Indian Assam tea. It is very subtle and um, delicious. This one is rather unique because it's a relatively rare tea from the mountaintops of Kenya. And it's very light. Light, summery, little forest berry taste. In so the best black teas in the world come from Sri Lanka and this one is nice and soft and round and kind of a creme brulee taste to it. It's soft and round. Yeah. yeah. And to gunpowder green tea, so it, I mean, it's not very green, but light green. Yeah, it's one of the most popular and widespread green teas in China, and there's no gunpowder in it, I checked. Um, And it's called gunpowder. It's got quite an interesting story behind the name, and 200 years ago, when English traders first encountered Chinese tea merchants, they didn't speak Chinese. Chinese, of course, didn't speak English, so you had one of these interesting setups where the English tea trader asked the Chinese fellow who was drinking tea, what is this tea that you're drinking? What do you call it? And the Chinese person, being very hospitable as they always are, thought he was asking for tea, and he answered him, Kui Gong Powder, 
which in Chinese means, yes, you can have some. It's just brewed. Gong powder means just brewed. Oh, wow. And so they heard gunpowder, green tea, and that's probably the best story of how we got that name. That's a great story. Mm. It's not green tea tasting. No, but it's quite refreshing with a little bit of hints of green apple, and that's our most popular one, I would say. Oh, really? Yeah. So at the moment, I'm thinking the Indian Assam is mm-hmm. my favorite. Good. So now I'm going to try the Genmaitsu special. This is the Genmai. Oh, Genmai. Yeah, it's pronounced with a hard G. It's from Japan, from Kyoto, mm. and it's a roasted rice tea. So it's a green tea with roasted rice in it, and it's a very homey, comforting, almost tastes like popcorn and green tea. Yeah, popcorn. That is what it tastes like. Yeah. And the smell. Mm-hmm. I have never had anything near that. Yeah. That's yeah, it's quite popular. Well, and it's very um, peculiar. <laughs> <laughs> Unique. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's just confusing <clears throat> because it smells and tastes like popcorn, but mm-hmm. you're drinking it and it's got a nice little froth on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most popular teas in Japan. And there's a story behind this, too, because every tea has a story. So three or four hundred years ago, a group of samurai were at their war camp, and the head samurai called one of the lackeys over and said, Oh, make me some tea. And so, of course, the guy scrambled to make his master tea, and as he was leaning over and uh, putting the tea leaves in the hot water, a piece of some of the roasted rice that had been trapped from last night's meal in his kimono fell into the tea. The master saw this, and of course, being a samurai master, immediately stood up, took out his sword, and cut the guy's head off, and sat back down and tried the tea and said, well, it's actually quite good. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have cut his head off. And that's how we got Genmai. And with that... <laughs> so this whole area, this whole building, the lower level, used to be a, a, a bread factory. And so it was really industrial and had holes in the walls and holes in the asphalt, and it was it's awful. still yeast-related. It was. <laughs> then Helen took us on a tour of the brewery. This is our storeroom here, and you can look. I kept the horrible industrial ceilings because this reminds me of what this whole place looked like. And it was also just like where I went to school in the United States. All classrooms look like this. And it has that soul-destroying fluorescent <laughs> light. And I just wanted it to be here so you could see the difference between what was and what we have now. Part of its providence. But the mm. thing about yeast is it does take on a bit of environment, doesn't no, it? No, it does. Especially, so that's another good point, is kombucha is an open-air fermentation, which means wherever you brew it, it absorbs the local yeast. So the culture we use is from New Zealand, it originated in China, but it has particularly New Zealand yeast. So if you took our culture, and people have, and they take it to Japan, or one person even took it to Uganda, and they started brewing there, it would taste like ours for the first brew, but then after that, it would slowly change and adopt local characteristics. So that's, this is our fermentation room. If you look it's full here, of kombucha, of brewing in 25-litre stainless steel buckets, and as Helen explains, several large glass jars of starter cultures ready for the next batch. So that's a SCOBY? Is it the same as when you're yeah, at this culture. scale? Yeah, yeah. The culture so the culture scale. is known as a SCOBY, which stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast, and that's the, the starter. It's like a yogurt or a sourdough. You can't make it without that. So to make kombucha, you need kombucha. And then the SCOBY on the right, they mm. look like a collection of inners, basically. Sort of, yeah, sort you of see those last two jars have those white things that are pretty scary looking. That's what everybody calls a SCOBY, but I'm going to blow your mind right now. That's called a pellicle. The SCOBY is actually the liquid. 
So the pellicle is a byproduct of brewing, and it, this is one of the most fascinating things about kombucha, is the culture produces this surface covering to protect it from competing bacteria and yeast so it can monopolize the food source itself. Helen so says the liquid is the key part, but when it's not working, mold will form on the pellicle. And this is, this is where we brew. You can see the temperatures at 23 degrees. I don't really allow people in here because it's sort of like a creche. It's like a nursery. This is where all the growth and goodness happens, and I don't want to disturb the cultures unnecessarily. There is a kind of yeasty smell. Yeah, yeah. there is, and a bit of a fermentation smell here. Uh, when I'm in here working, I try and only think good thoughts, and I, I really struggle not to use profanity because, you know, it is a sacred space. Nice. Okay, here's my little office, brewer's office. This is back here is our workshop. So this is where we do all the cleaning and store things. You can see some brew buckets and some kegs here um, and where we brew the tea. Now, in through this door used to be the staff room for the food, uh, the bakery that I told you about. So I said, we don't need a staff room. Let's turn it into a massive walk-in chiller. Yeah, so we keep this at two degrees, and this is where we keep all our product. This is where we keep all our teas, and um, yeah, it's much more popular to be here on a hot day than a cold day, I'll tell you. But yes, you have tea stored, you have kegs. Boxes and boxes of tea. You want to some tea sounds? <laughs> Listen to that tea. <laughs> and kegs of kombucha. We chill it down like this because, uh, well, two reasons. One, it tastes nice this way, but it also stops it from fermenting any further and we're able to lock in that flavor profile. But it's still alive and with probiotics. Nice. Sort of sleeping. Yes. Jesus, Helen is confident kombucha's popularity is going to continue to rise. Right now, we're at the beginning of the J-curve, all right? So it's just ready to take off, and it's starting to take off now. So more and more people are finding out about it, and there's, especially among millennials, there's a very strong movement against drinking alcohol. So people are looking for healthy substitutes, um, and kombucha certainly fits that bill. Also vegan. And vegans, yeah. A lot of our customers are vegan or vegetarian or into yoga. Um, generally, healthy people seek this type of thing out. But I can tell you, hippie, you don't need to be a hippie to drink it because I got my husband onto it. Yeah, no, good for you. <laughs> I was also lucky enough to get a bit of a lesson from the master on how to make kombucha. Kombucha needs to be made with the four basic ingredients, which are water, tea, sugar, and culture. And that gets the whole thing going. Most people don't realize the ancient origins uh, of this drink, and they think it's some new hipster thing, but it isn't. It's only recently that people have been experimenting and adding different juices and flavors and colorings to it. So everybody can trace their kombucha back to the original lineage in China, which means the kombucha you're drinking right now is 2,000 years old. Is it hard to keep alive? Is it hard to keep alive? I'm just asking for a friend who may have accidentally killed <laughs> We hear that a lot, yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. so it's not just me. No, actually, you know, like I said, you have to get a scoby from a friend before you can try brewing. And I have a friend of mine who's a, he's a bit of a hippie. Well, let's be honest, he's a full-blown hippie. And he lives in a shack on a hillside in Golden Bay. Yeah. So he sent me a scoby. And even though I was a brewer, I killed it. Oh, and okay, then he sent good. me another one. And then I finally figured it out. And that's what we're drinking now.
how did you kill your scoby? I thought mine I, was just neglect. It, a lot of it has to do with temperature control, right. right? And if it gets too cold, then the yeast go to sleep. If it gets too hot, the yeast go to sleep. And a lot of times they don't wake up. And so you end up with a, a, a mixture of sweetened tea and it's easy for competing bacteria or mold to invade and the culture can't fight it off, so to speak. Because it's a living organism. Yes, and that's the difference between making kombucha and brewing beer or wine or anything else. It is a living organism. And when you allow it to get too cold or too hot, too cold or too hot, and it's like you trying to get a good night's sleep and somebody comes in every two hours and wakes you up, you're going to be angry. And when your culture is angry, you can taste it in the kombucha. So the kombucha needs to be respected as a living organism. And I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. And that's why I felt genuinely really guilty when it did die, because it was a living organism. Yes, but it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a learning experience, and that was giving, the kombucha culture was giving you what we call a teachable moment. Spending so much time at the tap room, Helen drinks quite a bit of kombucha these days. My staff and I, we drink about a litre each a day. Wow. Well, it's free for us. <laughs> but I would say for a regular health intake, of fermented foods, it's a good idea to have something like kombucha or sauerkraut or, or, or yogurt even. But for kombucha, you know, 200 to 250 mils a day is, is ample and that would help definitely make a difference. Our customers notice, and many of them have told me that they feel great when they drink it and then when they stop drinking it, they start noticing they don't feel as good anymore, so they always come back. But Helen says not all kombucha is created equal. The Kiwi kombucha makers are all trying to do the right thing. Um, but the ones that are imported either from the U.S. or uh, Australia are often uh, come from large companies because they're the only ones who can afford to export. And a lot of that is what we would call fake corporate kombucha, meaning it's not brewed properly and the probiotics are injected just before bottling, so, and they use uh, fake sugar substitutes. Uh, so those ones I don't like the taste of, and to me they don't taste like kombucha, but they're more of a soda parading as a kombucha, since kombucha has become probably the fastest growing segment of the beverage market globally now. And so when you go to the supermarket and you see kombucha, it's always good to buy something as local as possible. What are our other signs if we're buying that we can see there's some authenticity? Um, they'll put the ingredients on, and the ingredients, the, the fewer the ingredients, the higher the quality, in my opinion. Right? If you see a lot of ingredients on any product that you're about to eat with uh, long names that you can't pronounce, maybe you should buy something else. Nikki Bazant backs this up. The sugar content really varies a lot across different brands of kombucha, so it's really worth just having a look on the labels and you can compare the sugar because um, it's obviously it's made with sugar, so there has to be sugar in there, but a lot of that is fermented out during the making of it. But then sometimes the kombucha companies will add sugar back in or add some kind of other sweetener back in. And a, and a sugary drink, I mean, even if it's kombucha, it's still a sugary drink if it's, if it's got a couple of teaspoons of sugar inside. So you want to probably pay a bit of attention to that. Derek Helen is pretty proud of his kombucha's sugar content. Once the kombucha's ready, we've had it lab tested and we found out our Assam tea uh, kombucha, for example, has 2.5% sugar, which is extremely low, and that means it has less sugar than one quarter of an apple by weight. So the million dollar question then, if we're drinking the right sort of kombucha, is it going to make us healthier? Here's Dr. Megan Rossi's take. 
although, I guess, anecdotally, we see ancestors for thousands of years have associated them with health benefits, my team at King's College in London actually just did a review paper where we wanted to have a look at what does the actual science say around fermented foods, and thing, including things like kombucha. And unfortunately, when it comes to kombucha, there's actually not been any human studies looking at kombucha. Now, there has been test tube studies, which essentially looks at the chemicals that are in kombucha, and they have suggested that there are some beneficial chemicals. But, you know, until you've actually done it and tested the kombucha in a human study, we can't actually make any sort of health claims. Um, so it's all based on kind of anecdotal evidence, which is why I think we shouldn't necessarily be filled into thinking we have to pay large amounts of money to have these fermented foods in our diet. I think they're a really nice ad. And particularly if you make it yourself, it's like a fun way to engage the whole family in this new scientific world around the fact that these microbes are not only living within us, but all around us and actually do so much for us. Nikki Bazant says part of the problem is any probiotics and fermented foods have a lot to get through before they can be of any benefit. So the thing with probiotics is that there are tons and tons and tons of them and a lot of different types and a lot of different strains. And if you're going to claim a benefit from a probiotic, you really need to specify the specific strain, the very specific strain, and you need to specify the, what that specific strain has been tested and found to be beneficial for, and then you need to say how much of that bacteria is in the, in the food, and then you need to um, consider that, that, that those bacteria are affected by how the food is stored, how it's transported, you know, how long it's been on the shelf for, all of those things affect um, sort of the dying off of the bacteria. Uh, and then when we eat the food... You know, not all the bacteria survive our gut because our gut is highly acidic, our stomach is highly acidic. So, so you're not necessarily going to get all of the benefit that's claimed without all of those things being in a really, really perfect sort of sequence. But both Bazant and Dr. Rossi think that if you like fermented foods and drinks, you should keep them in your diet. Eat them if you enjoy the taste and the flavours, uh, but don't think uh, you have to have them and pay large amounts of them to have a healthy gut. You know, dietary fibre, plant-based eating, um, not exclusively plant-based, but mostly plants on your plate seems to be the best way to get good gut health. I think the fermented food world is very interesting, a nice ad, but I don't think they're going to be a miraculous cure to all of these conditions. We certainly are seeing, though, that dietary fibre, like I said, in all our plant-based foods, so like in our whole grains, our nuts, our seeds, our veggies, our legumes, um, and obviously our fruit, those sorts of foods contain the fibre, which actually fibre feeds our gut bacteria, so human cells can't digest fibre. The sole purpose of dietary fibre is actually to feed our gut bacteria. And there's been some amazing research coming out. One um, study which looked at heaps and heaps of studies together, so it combined it all together, um, showed that for every eight grams of dietary fibre per day on a population level, we could reduce our risk of type 2 diabetes by 15%, our risk of heart disease by um, 18%, and our risk of colon cancer by 9%. And that's just with eight grams of fibre, which is like a can of beans, of legumes, or some veggie sticks and some hummus. So it is certainly an amount that we can all get into our diet. But unfortunately, very few of us are actually getting enough dietary fibre. So I know that's a bit of a leap from fermented foods, but 
a lot of the fermented foods, like things like uh, fermented veggies, so kimchi and sauerkraut, also contain the dietary fibre. So it's a bit of a you know double win. Why not have the kimchi and, and sauerkraut, which not only contain the dietary fibre, but potentially also contain some of those live microbes, which may populate our gut and do beneficial things. Dr Rossi herself is partial to kefir. Yeah, so I am a big fan of kefir, so the dairy kefir, because it's just such an easy thing to make. So I don't have, you know, loads of time to, you know, spend in the kitchen making things like sourdough, um, you know, which is so tasty, but also is very time consuming. So with the kefir, as I was mentioned before, it's literally just popping in the, the microbes, which are in these little grains. You put them in some milk, leave it. Um, to its own devices over overnight out of the fridge and in the morning you've got kefir and I often make uh, fermented oats so I add some kefir to my overnight oats and essentially what the um, microbes from the kefir do is they really transform some of the flavours within my oats whether it's the dates and the cinnamon and the carrots and the oats they ferment them and really give it a lighter and more refreshing kind of taste um, so in the morning it's ready to go. It's kind of like a little bit of a um, tart but kind of bubbly milk. So it's kind of like a natural yogurt in a way. Um, But the thing with kefir is really great is that you can determine how kind of sour you want to go with your kefir. And I have kind of established that taste. So when people first taste my kefir, they go, oh, that's too, too bitter. Um, but you can kind of grade it according to your taste buds. And they do certainly adapt to that kind of um, that sourness, which I actually crave now. And so does my little puppy actually, loves kefir. <laughs> yeah, only in small quantities for puppies. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a, a great drink. And with any fermented products, it's wise to exercise a bit of common sense. It's an interesting area where there has been, you know, a couple of observational studies where they look at big populations and they look at people who have fermented foods and those who don't. And there was one that looked at um, a slight increased risk of certain types of cancers. However, there's been many other observational studies which have kind of negated that. Um, So I think they, you know, from the long history, um, you know, thousands of years, they are generally safe. I think there could be some risks for people. So some types of fermented foods are very high in salt, things like kimchi and sauerkraut. So if you have high blood pressure issues, just being cautious that you're not having crazy amounts of that. Um, other things could be if you're making your own, you need to be, you know, a bit savvy. If there's like mold growing over your kimchi or sauerkraut, you know, chuck it out because some of those microbes, you know, could be dangerous if it's mouldy and it looks really gross and stinky. And I would say overall, it's not as dangerous as some people kind of make it out to be, but there is a slight risk. So you do need to have your wits about you. And as is so often the case, Dr. Rossi says we need more trials to really know how fermented foods could make us healthier. I absolutely do advocate um, that we do more clinical trials. In terms of, I guess, the types of fermented foods with the most, I guess, human studies, um, kefir, dairy kefir, there has been two clinical trials. So one showing health benefit in people with H. pylori, so a gut infection, alongside antibiotics. So to treat H. pylori gut infection, people have to go on quite high doses of antibiotics. And a study showed that adding in kefir to that actually can have a better response rate compared to people who just have antibiotics on their own. Um, and then also for a lactose intolerance, it's also been shown to have a benefit. But that seems to be, you know, two is not very many. Most other study, most other products have, you know, you know, 
hundreds of different studies on it. So we do need to advocate um, for more fermented food studies. It is really difficult, obviously, as a researcher myself. I have tried to get funding for fermented food studies, but it's not necessarily something the government wants to fund at this stage. I think over time, maybe the public will convince them that it is a real interest area. But at the moment, uh, they're more into the medical therapies. And given she's the expert, we asked Dr Rossi to give us a healthier hoax rating for fermented foods. I would probably say two and a half at the moment. And just a quick side note on kombucha and alcohol. Whenever you have fermentation, alcohol is created. It's a byproduct. So the more sugar you put in your kombucha, the more alcohol you create, all things being equal, which is why our sugar levels are extremely low and our alcohol levels are almost non-existent and we have them tested to make sure they stay that way. Um, When we hear about alcohol levels exceeding legal limits, which in New Zealand are 1.15%, that's generally a case of being too sweet and then the second fermentation takes place in the bottle. So it may leave the kombucha factory being okay, but if you open it, introduce oxygen, leave it in your car for a few days when you go to the batch, you know, heats up, it starts fermenting, it's gonna produce more alcohol because it's got all that sugar in it and then it could raise above the legal threshold. And that's generally been the issue when there is an issue. But we have to remind ourselves that um, a lot of products sold on the shelves like cough syrup and things like that have much higher levels of alcohol than kombucha. And when you let kombucha warm up and ferment like that, it might get to 2%, maybe 3%, certainly no higher. That's undesirable, but it's not dangerous. However, it's something no kombucha brewer wants to see. One other comment on that is they are now introducing hard kombucha, which is kombucha that's brewed to 5 or 6%. But to do that, you have to use a different yeast than we normally use with kombucha. You have to do a second fermentation, and you use champagne yeast to get that alcohol higher. So it's a totally different process. My interest is a little bit peaked, I must admit. But um, in terms of vodka kombucha. Yeah. What's your take on those types? Of well, drinks? you know, it's interesting because I used to drink tons of beer since, again, I was making so much of it. But now that we've set up uh, our kombucha tap room here, I've been drinking kombucha all day and I don't feel like drinking beer and it's sort of displaced alcohol from my life. So I've given up drinking alcohol entirely um, just because of that. And um, I know some of my staff like taking kombucha home and mixing it with things. And they say it, it mixes wonderfully well with vodka or gin. Yeah, yeah. with spirits, you would imagine. Yeah, sort of it's a great mix. mixer. And I believe um, going forward that this will be like the next leg of growth for kombucha. You'll see kombucha cocktails and high-end bars and things like that. But don't expect perhaps the same health benefits? I think at that stage of the evening, you don't really care. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this final episode of Healthy or Hoax for Season 2, hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Huge thanks to Dr. Megan Rossi and Nikki Bazant for their expertise. Professor Alexander Tupps also provided some useful background information. And to Derek Hillen and Diego at New Leaf Tap Room, thanks for being so welcoming. This episode was produced by Liz Garten with help from Kate Pereira Garcia. The audio engineer was Adrian Holley, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer. Healthy or Hoax is available on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, and wherever you find your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Ngamanaki tangote wa kia koto katoa.